Good morning, friends. It's retreat day. Oh, how I love a retreat day. I hope everybody's morning was nice, that you enjoyed our prayers. We have a lovely retreat planned for today. Uh, our retreat is on the topic of my favorite subject, bodhicitta, the uh, loving heart of goodness. And um, so we're going to be learning about bodhicitta today, and we're also going to be learning about the practice at attaining bodhicitta, which is called mind training. So uh, bodhicitta technically is described as the altruistic mind of enlightenment. Um, bodhicitta is possibly the most important aspect in the Mahayana teachings. So if you remember, we have two main forms of Buddhism, the Theravada and the Mahayana. Uh, this comes from the Mahayana teachings, and uh, it's focused on compassion and social responsibility, care for others. It's a lovely, lovely uh, idea here. Um, according to the Mahayana, without a direct realization of uh, bodhicitta, enlightenment is not possible. So the term itself, bodhicitta, is comprised of two words. The first being bodhi, meaning awakening, and the second one's siti, meaning mind. Uh, together, they're commonly translated as awakened mind or the mind of enlightenment. Um, the principles of bodhicitta are comprised of two aspects, and that is the aspiration to achieve Buddhahood or awakening and the altruistic intention to do, for, for, do so for the sake of others. So that's where the altruism comes in. In other words, bodhicitta is the altruistic aspiration and determination to become a Buddha in order to free all beings from suffering. Um, within the, when these two aspects of uh, aspiration and intention come together spontaneously and simultaneously, they are re uh, referred to as the mind of bodhicitta, a mind that continuously and spontaneously works for the benefit of others. Now, one of the reasons they call it the mind of bodhicitta, they refer to it as a mind, is because at a certain point, uh, bodhicitta, when it becomes very, very strong, becomes a constant perception uh, or view or state of mind. So that's why they call it the mind of bodhicitta. It's a constant mental state. Um, the attainment of bodhicitta uh, uh, requires learning to relinquish self-cherishing and learning to develop cherishing for others. Um, uh, I often think of bodhicitta uh, as uh, caring for others with motherly intent. That's when I'm thinking of bodhicitta, that's usually the image that comes to mind. I imagine a mother with a sick child in her arms and the only wish she has is to take that suffering away at, at, in any way she can. Uh, her Even her own concerns aren't there. She just wants to benefit that child. So I always think the mother is the, uh, is the mother is the great um, uh, archetype 
for bodhicitta, the the unconditional love of a mother. So, uh, and we accomplish this through the practice of mind training. Um, so, uh, the simplest form of mind training is merely a constant reflection upon the thought. I wish to become a Buddha for the benefit of all beings. In fact, that line is in the Bodhisattva prayer that uh, people that have taken Bodhisattva vows would recite in the morning and in the evening every day. So uh, that's a constant reminder that we're, we're working at developing ourselves, improving ourselves, awakening so that we can benefit others and help others to do the same. Um, there's two aspects to bodhicitta. There's a conventional or, con or they call contrived bodhicitta, and there's an ultimate or uncontrived bodhicitta. Uh, conventional bodhicitta is a conceptual understanding of bodhicitta gained through study and practice, uh, often arising with some effort within meditation but lost when not in meditation. However, ultimate or uncontrived bodhicitta is different. It's a direct experiential realization of bodhicitta. It arises spontaneously without effort within meditation, but still present when not in meditation. Ultimate bodhicitta is often referred to as a mind, as we talked before, for the fact that it becomes a constant and enduring mental state through what, which one perceives reality. So um, conventional bodhicitta is, is what we're doing right now. We're studying about it. Uh, we're going to do some practice on it, but it's just a conceptual understanding of it. Conventional bodhicitta is the ultimate in fake it till you make it. It's, or in our case, we'd probably better say practice till you make it. We engage with bodhicitta in whatever capacity we can and try to work with it until some point where we have a real experience, a direct experience of ultimate bodhicitta, which just comes upon us spontaneously. Uh, oftentimes it hits you sideways. You don't, you don't even know it's coming and all of a sudden you realize that you're in the middle of it. Uh, Stephen Batchelor often translates bodhicitta, very interesting, as love. And, uh, and at first I wasn't sure if, if I really cared for the translation. But if you look at the Buddhist translation of the word love, which is very simple, it's the wish to take away the suffering of another person right? That's the idea of love. Um, so in that idea, uh, in, that, in that kind of uh, traditional translation, I really see how one could translate bodhicitta as love. But with that said, we have to understand love a little bit. So there's many kinds of love. You know, we, we love our moms, we love ice cream, we love movies, we love having a day off. There's a lot of kinds of love. We love our, our pets, our cats and our dogs. But generally there's two main aspects of love. One that is common love, being that it has some element of self-interest within it. It has some interest of kind of selfishness. And probably a lot of us know this in our uh, romantic involvements, how um, we love someone, but within that love is a mix of, well, that person brings a lot to us, 
You know, they, uh, you don't feel lonely because this person's in your life. They complete you as the old phrase goes. Um, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, having a partner is, uh, is a social status that uh, if you don't have a partner, you, you feel unworthy of love or some people feel like failures if they don't have a partner or if they're not married at a certain age. So uh, regular love tends to have a lot of self-interest in it. And, uh, but when we talk about bodhicitta as being love, we're talking about a very different kind of love. We're talking about a, a pure love that that self-interest and that selfishness vanishes. And again, we could go back to that image of the mother with the sick child in her arms. There is no sense of selfishness, right, in this. This is, uh, this is the purest form of love. And um, this is what we're talking about with bodhicitta. That mother would give anything. We even take the place of the child in the, sick, in the sickness and suffering in order to bring, uh, bring some happiness to the child. So when we talk about bodhicitta's being love, we're talking about this kind of awakened or enlightened love that is just interested in the benefit of others. With that said, there is a paradox in the way we love and we care for others. Um, there's the idea that um, if we abandon ourselves and we care for others, then others will care for us. But uh, in, in reality, there has to be a, a balance between the two. There's a spectrum. We take care of ourselves and we love ourselves and we, and we take care of ourselves in order to benefit others. And through benefiting others, they take care and, and, and help us. So we do both at the same time. I don't think we want to favor one over the other. The Mahayana is, is a very strong, kind of in a poetic view of just abandoning yourself completely to the benefit of others. And then others will take care of you and you have nothing to worry about. That's, very, uh, that's a very pretty idea and there's truth to it. But in practical matters, uh, we need to take care of ourselves so we can take care of others at the same time. So I see it much more of a 50-50. So, um, but again, we're talking about in a very non-selfish way. Yes? Okay, so when we talk about bodhicitta, we have to talk about the bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is a kind of a, a Mahayana saint. Um, that uh, is a, a considered a very, very high level of practitioner. Uh, technically, we define a bodhisattva as one who possesses bodhicitta. Pretty simple, yeah? The term bodhisattva is comprised of two words, bodhi, again, meaning awakening, and sattva, meaning essence, being, or spirit. In this case, I think we'd use the word being. So the idea of bodhisattva is an awakened being one who possesses the mind of awakening. So um, uh, I remember when I first started uh, studying Buddhism ages ago, and uh, I remember reading about the Bodhisattva and it just blew my mind. 
And the thing that blew my mind about the Bodhisattva that they say that although in, in a position to attain nirvana and to not be reborn again, uh, out of great compassion to all sentient life, uh, Bodhisattvas forego this and instead choose to be reborn over and over and again in order to benefit others. And, and I remember when I first uh, heard that, I couldn't believe that anybody would, that would be that compassionate. At the time, I was just coming out of uh, Catholicism, and I thought uh, to forgo heaven to be reborn, to help everyone else get to heaven before me, I thought, oh, who could possibly be that compassionate? And uh, funny, funny to think that years later, I ended up taking Bodhisattva vows myself, as well as all my friends. Everyone in the Mahayana tradition ends up taking Bodhisattva vows. We'll talk about those in a little bit. Um, but uh, there's, a, uh, there's another aspect to this uh, poetic idea of the Bodhisattva coming back over and over. It's uh, though the intention is to benefit others, there's another uh, aspect to it. And that's the intention to come back so they can continue to work on themselves and achieve an even higher level of perfection. So in the Theravada tradition, Practitioners work to become arhats, and an arhat is a, is a being in nirvana. It's a very, very high level of being. It's an enlightened, awakened being, but not yet a Buddha. The Theravada hold the term Buddha for very, very special arhats. Only every every few millennium or after a few eons are there Buddhas. I mean, these are. This is an exceptional being. Everyone in our, in our time would just be considered arhats. But however, the Mahayana believe that their path leads beyond arhat to actually becoming a Buddha. And so uh, bodhicitta uh, is a requirement to achieve this state of Buddhahood. And this is the bodhisattva's goal, is to go beyond arhat and to become a Buddha itself. Quite fascinating. So um, there's a ninth century Indian Buddhist master named Shantideva who wrote, wrote the most beautiful uh, material you've ever read. Uh, everyone who reads it just bursts into tears. I remember just crying and crying reading his books. He writes, very strongly on the Bodhisattva and the Bodhisattva principles and Bodhicitta. Um, Shantideva is what gives Tibetan Buddhism its truly warm and compassionate feel. Those, those aspects that are so unique in Tibetan Buddhism. All Buddhism is compassionate. All Buddhism is full of altruism. But um, this, these later ages of Indian Buddhism from say maybe the seventh century on, they weren't exported out into the world. They didn't go to South Asia. They didn't go to the East. They were in India itself. And when India was conquered by Turk invaders, this later form of Indian Buddhism <clears throat> was, was taken to the Himalayas for protection by the great masters of Nalanda University, one of the great, great universities of ancient India. 
Uh, the Dalai Lama often says that Tibetan Buddhism is the Buddhism of Nalanda. Excuse me. <coughs> and so Shantideva in particular was one of uh, the, some of the material that was taken to Tibet. And so uh, Shantideva strongly, strongly uh, for, uh, forms this wonderful, compassionate and warmth style of Tibetan Buddhism. With that said, one of the Dalai Lama's favorite quotes by Shantideva, which in my opinion, <clears throat> uh, completely en encapsulates all of the beautiful qualities of the Bodhisattva is this, quote, for as long as space endures and for as long as living beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the miseries of the world. Shantideva, isn't that lovely? Let me say it again. For as long as space endures and for as long as living beings remain, until then, may I too abide to dispel the miseries of the world. That's a true Bodhisattva ideal. Okay, so uh, when people are, uh, are getting into the Mahayana teachings, and maybe we could use the word indoctrinated into the Mahayana teachings, uh, to do so, uh, practitioners take bodhisattva vows, and it's your first step into uh, the Mahayana teachings. <clears throat> These are voluntary. Uh, nowadays, you can study them without the vow, but um, the idea is, uh, you know, we, we want to do more than just practice. Uh, we want to do more than just study these principles in the Mahayana teachings. We want to put them into practice. And vows are a form of practice, right? Vows are a commitment to behavior uh, that coincide with the teachings. So they're the first step in practice. And the Bodhisattva vows, um, it's a pledge to uphold 64 precepts focused on ethics, compassion, selflessness, and generally just excellent human behavior. And in my opinion, I don't think I've ever read uh, anything in any of the other ideologies and religions as beautiful as the Bodhisattva vows. Um, every religion has their, their, uh, their list of, of human behaviors, the Ten Commandments in, in Christianity. Um, and in here with the Bodhisattva vows, they are just the most beautiful um, uh, idea of uh, human behavior. So, um, and you can uh, view them online. In fact, uh, in my text, Tibetan Buddhist Essentials, volume three, uh, I, list, I think I list the Bodhisattva vows in there. Um, that text is free to download from tenzintarpa.com. So go ahead and take a look at that. And, um, and at the same time, uh, these teachings on Bodhicitta and, and mind training are taken from that text. So, uh, Tibetan Buddhist Essentials is three volumes. In volume one, we talk about the Mahayana school and what Bodhicitta is. In volume three, we talk is, is dedicated to practice and we talk about mind training there. So in volumes one and volume three, you can read more about what we're talking about today. <clears throat> and with that said, let's get into mind training. Oh, Mind training, it sounds quite daunting, doesn't it? When you say my, mind training, it sounds kind of really heavy. I think it's really mis, misnamed because uh, 
because of what a beautiful thing it is, you know, uh, mind training sounds heavily disciplined and, but this is uh, training in goodness. This is learning how to be a, a good person, learning how to be compassionate and loving. This is training in learning how to be a loving person. And with that said, I've nicknamed mind training. I think it should be called heart training, heart training, because, you know, of course, the, the heart is just a, it's just a figurative expression. Our emotions are in our mind as well. But, um, but these trainings are really heart trainings. They're about training our emotions and our compassion and just absolutely lovely. So let me get into this with you. Uh, so mind training is a practice of contemplation that you utilized by all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So no matter what school of Tibetan Buddhism you belong to, everybody practices mind training. In Tibetan, they call it lojong. So maybe some of you have heard it by that name, Lojong. Um, mind training first comes to Tibet in the 11th century, brought by the Nalanda master, Atisha. And um, he brings two forms of mind training practice uh, to Tibet. So the two main presentations of mind training, one is called the seven point cause and effect method. And that, that's one that Atisha favors. But then there's the five-fold exchanging self and other method, which uh, came, uh, was written by Nagarjuna. Uh, so, um, and the names are unimportant. But within the Geluk school of, of Tibetan Buddhism, which I'm a, a monk of the Geluk tradition, as well as the Dalai Lama is, uh, these two methods of mind training are combined into one practice. And this was done by the great Geluk uh, scholar and founder of the Geluk school, Lama Tsongkhapa. And he creates uh, a really unique uh, practice called the 11 point method for generating bodhicitta. And it's a special practice only found in the Geluk school. But I find it to be absolutely amazing. And um, so let's get into it. Let's share it. I thought maybe at this point, I should uh, share my screen with everybody because this can be kind of heady. Ugh, this can be kind of heavy. And uh, I think it's a lot easier when you can uh, follow along and read it. So what I want to do is just read through them all and uh, we can discuss them a little bit after that. So the 11-point method of generating bodhicitta. The first one's called equanimity. So each one of these is a contemplation and or visualization, right? So each one is a practice in itself. You, we go step by step and you practice each one. So the first one, you might practice for quite a while. You could practice it uh, in this week's meditations. We're going to be practicing each one for a day. But, but to get a real experience from it, quite possibly you should practice each one for a week or so or more. And you shouldn't move forward until you really have a feel for these, that you feel it in your bone, you really get it. And of course, these are practiced within our insight meditation. They're brought in and we, and we meditate on those. But with that said, 
they're not just insight meditation practices. We contemplate them outside of meditation too, because a lot of them you're going to see have to do with how we relate to others. So we, we both practice this on the cushion as well as keeping it in our mind throughout the day and how we relate to others. So with that said, let's go through the first one, equanimity. Visualize three groups of people in front of you. Friends on the right, strangers in the middle, and enemies on the left. Contemplate how easily friends can become enemies and enemies can become friends. And also how easy it is for strangers to become either. Reflect on how all these groups are primarily the same in that they want, they want happiness and don't want to suffer. Try to generate compassion and appreciation for them equally. Endeavor to realize the fundamental equality that binds all sentient life. So now we talk about this uh, often. We talk about uh, the, the, the thing that really brings us all together are these real human qualities, uh, not human qualities, but, but all sentient life wants, to, wants happiness and, and doesn't want to suffer. All of us have one goal every day. It's just to get through the day, right? To get through the day and have the feeling that tomorrow will also be okay. This is the goal we, every single one of us has every single day. Um, but there's also other qualities that we share. And often we're talking about, one of my favorite lines is, our shared human limitations our shared human limitations. And that's our ignorance. That's, that's uh, our negative emotions, our anger, our jealousy, our impatience, uh, our moods, our emotions, these kind of, these kind of negative uh, qualities. Why do we call them uh, common shared limitations? Because all human beings have them. Everybody has them. We have them in different amounts, but everybody has and knows anger. Everybody has and knows jealousy, envy. Everyone has ignorance. Um, so we just have them in different amounts. So one person, you might know someone, and he has a really strong anger problem. But, you know, you relate to him because you got an anger problem, too. Maybe it's not as bad as his, but you have your own. So when we look at human beings... Uh, human beings are good people, but they're all weighed down by these common shared limitations. We all have them. To me, uh, in meditation, when I focus on that, that's the thing that really brings that sense of equality to my mind, that everybody's fighting a battle against the same enemy as I am. I am. It's evolutionary. It's just our limitations, and we're we're spiritually evolving to become better. So this is the first uh, visualization. Um, the the first the visualization at the top of having the three groups with uh, friends on the right, strangers in the middle, and enemies to the left. This is a, a visualization that's used in a lot of tantric practices, and especially if you've ever seen uh, Tibetans doing prostrations where they they do this bow and they slide out flat on the ground till they're completely extended then they slide back up again and come up back to a standing position they're called prostrations they're like long bows um 
But this is the visualization for prostrations. Interesting, huh? So it's a lovely visualization. So that's the first one. Now, number two, number three, and number four are kind of related to the same uh, uh, visualization. Uh, so the first, or, or a visualization or contemplation, sorry. Um, number two is the contemplation that all beings have been our mothers. Now, if you believe, whether you believe in rebirth or not, it doesn't matter. These are contemplations. These are thought experiments. If you don't, it doesn't matter if you believe in it, you can kind of play along. But Tibetans have the idea that in one lifetime or another, uh, we've all been reborn so many times that everybody, including all the men you know, have at one time or another been our mothers and we've been all their mothers. It's a pretty thought, but... Um, I don't know how, how it applies to overpopulation. There's so many more people in the world now. Nevertheless, it's a lovely thought. But um, this practice doesn't require that belief. Uh, uh, here, imagine that all beings have been your mothers through which uh, we have received and gotten motherly love from, uh, from, all, from them. So... <clears throat> The idea is you you see people, you, you're in line at the grocery store and you come up to the cashier and you just picture that she's your mother. And it's an extraordinary practice, I have to tell you. This is one of my favorites. And I found this to be a really profound practice. And I remember when I, when I practice it once, I'm in line again at the grocery store, I'm waiting in line and I see the cashier, it's a young lady and I imagine that she's my mother. And what happened was uh, it, it ate away directly at my objectivity of the person, right? So, uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, I'm not sure if, you, if you're all aware of it, but we, we objectify so much in our lives. We objectify the people, like cashiers, we don't see them as real human beings. We see them as a job, as an occupation, almost like they're robots. We objectify them, cashier. And, you know, we don't necessarily have to respect them so much. And, you know, and they represent the company and you can feel free to yell at them. But this is kind of how we objectify. And, um, but when I saw her as, as I thought of her as my mother and I started practicing this, all of a sudden that object, objectification melted away and I saw this real human being and all of a sudden I started to imagine like what her home life would be and she probably has small children at home and you know maybe she doesn't have enough money for rent or there's trouble or someone's sick in the home. I just imagined all the scenarios of this person, and uh, and it was it was quite profound, and then uh, and then the other side of it is when you practice this, you'll be uh, surprised that people notice it. So uh, as I come up in line and I see her and I let I look at her, she looks at me and looks down to work, but then does a double take and looks back up at me, <laughs> and she kind of smiles and looks into my eyes. Oh, you know, we feel each other's emotions. We read each other's emotions. So I was really surprised that when I practice this, whether it's a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. Uh, you, you get a reaction from people. And I always thought that was quite spooky, but really lovely. 
and uh, and the the ultimate way to to see another person. It's wonderful. So that's the practice. And then number three comes into that. And it's remembering the kindness of our mothers, acknowledging and appreciating the love shown by these mothers and consider all that they have done and sacrificed for us, including the difficulties that went through for caring for us. So we can all imagine, and, and uh, I'm, I'm a monk, I don't have children. I keep forgetting many of you have children. You've been mothers, you've been fathers, you've changed diapers, you've been up all night rocking a sick child. This is an easy one for most of you, right? So, but uh, yeah, to just, you know, while you're, kind of, while you're seeing someone as your mother to kind of remember what mothers go through out of pure love, pure bodhicitta, right? Pure bodhicitta to take care of us, completely unselfish. Um, that's part of the visualization. Number four, wishing to repay their kindness, recognize the debt that we owe all mothers and our responsibility to repay their love and kindness. So as you can see, two, three, and four work together. So you see someone as your mother, you remember the, the, the things that mothers do for children and that person quite possibly did for you in another lifetime. And your responsibility and your debt that you have to repay that person. So those three go together. What a powerful practice that is. One of the great, great practices of mind training. Now I'd like to take a second and point out, maybe you've noticed, are you seeing how these practices could lead to amazing uh, uh, surgence of, of compassion and kindness and altruism? Could you see if you really dug into these two practices we talked about so far, that both of these contemplations uh, with practice could really change the way your mind works? Uh, there, it's a profound practice. Let's move on to the next one. Number five is another profound one, exchanging self and other. So contemplate how everyone like yourself wants happiness and not to suffer, like we spoke about. Exchange others' perspectives with your own. Imagine others as yourself, uh, as you, as you, uh, and you as them. Sorry. So this is a great practice. So anytime you're connecting with someone else, you can do it right now as we're teaching. Imagine that you're that person with that agenda, you sharing those thoughts, and you're listening. And uh, you learn so much about yourself, because you contemplate what reaction would I want from people, if the other person's saying all these things, and, and I'm saying, and, and, and they're saying all these things, well, what kind of reaction would I want from people, you know, and then, and of course, the other way around. Uh, but uh, this is a profound practice for understanding your own mind and kind of learning about the game of language and how language is kind of a game. We say something and we're trying to fish for a certain response from others. It's always a game of, uh, of uh, asserting something so we get a response. We play back and forth. But I recommend this practice uh, highly to it. And you can practice it all day long. So right now, you could imagine yourself as me teaching, and then you could think, well, what kind of reaction would I want from people? 
And I would say just applause. You guys could all applaud from your homes. And of course, lots of praise. Praise is accepted. I'm kidding, of course. Number six, faults of self-cherishing. So uh, uh, six and seven uh, work together. So uh, we contemplate the, that self-cherishing is the cause of great suffering. Um, and number seven, the benefits of cherishing others, contemplating that cherishing others is the cause of genuine happiness. So Tibetans have a lovely phrase uh, that kind of sums this up. And they say that uh, happiness comes from wanting, uh, suffering comes from wanting yourself to be happy. Suffering comes from wanting others to be happy. Uh, happiness comes, I'm sorry, happiness comes from wanting others to be happy. Suffering comes from wanting yourself to be happy. Got it. So that's a lovely uh, quote. Um, number eight, taking others suffering through compassion. Um, visualize taking on the suffering of others. Eight and nine are combined, and they're combined into a practice called Tonglen. It's a very, very popular practice, one that's taught at a lot of Dharma centers. And uh, eight goes with nine, giving, our, giving others happiness with love, visualizing others, uh, giving your uh, love and happiness to others. So the way Tonglen works is that it's usually a visualization. And uh, as you sit, you imagine the suffering or negative karma of other people as black smoke. And as you sit, you breathe in the black smoke into your body, and then you purify it and then release it as white smoke. And it's all your healing energy and all your goodness and good karma that you give out. So in a sense, we kind of work as like karmic air purifiers. We breathe in this smoke and we breathe out pure white clouds of uh, smoke. And uh, so at first, a lot of people are quite uh, wigged out by this. They're freaked out a little bit. And they say, oh, I don't want to breathe in the black smoke of other people's karma. But um, I think that's just at the beginning. At some point you realize you can't really breathe in negative karma. This is a, a mechanism for working with the way you look at the world. I, you can't really breathe in people's karma. You can't breathe in their merit. It's according to Buddhism, it's just not possible. Um, but it's, it's, it's there to change the way you see these things. Uh, we are always so focused on self-cherishing. And, and when we say self-cherishing, we don't mean self-preservation. We're talking about a selfish self-cherishing, putting ourselves above all others in a very selfish way. And uh, this is by far the, the big problem that we deal with in life, is this idea of self-interest and uh, self-cherishing. And so this practice digs to the heart of that. And this practice, by learning how to breathe in the negativity of others and breathe out goodness, uh, it really helps to, to change this. Uh, in Tibet, this was used as a medical practice and, uh, and they claim it had great results. Uh, one of the ideas, say, say you have, uh, you've, you, you've been diagnosed with cancer and so the idea of Tonglen would be 
that you would say, since I have cancer and I'm suffering, say that you're, you're feeling the results of the, of the effects of the cancer and you're sick and you're in pain and you're suffering. Uh, you say to yourself, since I'm going to suffer with this uh, cancer and I can't do anything about it, then I'm going to take on the suffering of anyone with cancer so that only I have to be the one to suffer. And with that thought, you breathe in the cancer from all the people from in the world and you you accept it wholeheartedly out of altruism and with only the wish to uh to help alleviate the suffering of all of these people and then with the out breath you give them your goodness and your healing feelings of healing um and what this does on a on a more grounded level is it gets you to accept the condition you're in. It gets you to accept the suffering to a point. And though you you can't, might not be able to get away from the suffering, it seems to make the suffering more bearable because it gives us a positive uh, aspect for us to work with. There's something positive in the practice that... Um, that we, we can work with. And I have many, many friends uh, who are in chronic uh, conditions and many of them are secular and they don't believe in magic. They don't believe in healing powers, but they claim that uh, the practice was just amazing for helping to relieve their situation. So don't doubt it until you try it. It's a wonderful, wonderful practice. A lot of meditation groups will take a day and practice Tonglen. And uh, number 10, special altruistic intention. And this is contemplated one's responsibility in saving all beings from suffering. So number 10 and 11 are related to someone who is taking bodhisattva vows. Uh, the bodhisattva vow is that I will uh, awaken for the benefit of others. I pledge it. I promise it. So um, people that haven't taken the bodhisattva vow, you don't have to worry about 10 and 11 in practice unless you find some benefit of it. But if you have taken the vow, these two are related to your vow and help you contemplate exactly what that means. And again, uh, by living a life where we're focused on benefiting others and alleviating the suffering of others, we feel our own suffering lessened, right? So you know, science uh, still agrees with the Buddhist idea that we can only think of one thought at a time. We, our senses can hear uh, in tandem. We can, our senses can uh, uh, perceive in tandem. We can see and hear a movie. We can taste and smell food. But the thinking process, we can only do one at a time. And so the idea of the Bodhisattva vow, the kind of the hidden secret is that when you're focused on, on benefiting others and alleviating the suffering from others, guess what? You're not thinking about your own problems. You're not focused on your own suffering, right? So it's a really interesting trick. And by the way, it works. Uh, there's the old saying, you know, if you're poor, help someone who's more poor. If you're suffering, help someone who's more suffering. If you're lonely, help someone that's more lonely. So this is how the, the, the whole mechanism of bodhicitta and bodhisattva works. And uh, on the other end, you could imagine that this whole mechanism, uh, how it plays into the idea of community, 
right? When we're when we're working so diligently to create bodhicitta and become lovely, kind, loving people, you could imagine the benefit on our environment and on our community. So uh, the the practice of bodhicitta and Buddha, uh, and the bodhisattva bodhicitta and mind training is profound. Uh, I don't think it's it, it goes too far to say that this practice, if we practice it earnestly, if we could get many people to practice it earnestly, would take care of most of the problems we deal with in the world, right? Uh, getting rid of our selfishness, there'd be food for everyone, there'd be health care for everyone, there'd be money for everyone. We really, we really could live in a, in a complete paradise. And so um, I don't think the chances are we're not going to be able to get everybody to practice it. But, um, you know, if some of us practice it, we can, uh, we can benefit and we can uh, increase the percentage and, and teach people by example. So that's uh, the idea of monks, that we try to live by these ideals and show people that we live by these ideals to, to, uh, to teach by example. So, uh, and then number 11, generating bodhicitta, bodhicitta, contemplate upon one's wish and determination to achieve Buddhahood in order to save all beings from suffering. Again, the last two are directly related to uh, bodhisattva vows. And so now I should sum it all up in some common, a few common thoughts. And so uh, this whole thing that we talked about, which is quite heady, I think often the presentation, I don't know why it needs to be so academic. When you break it down, it's quite simple that, um, uh, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, uh, I was a Catholic boy and I was in Sunday school and Catholicism and of course, uh, in uh, Christianity, the, the big idea is love and, and becoming a more loving person and showing other people how to love. But I found that at some point, uh, they really didn't have much as far as method as in, in becoming a more loving person. You know, the, the recommendation was to, to, uh, to pray and things like that, but they didn't seem to have any concrete methods or practices to really develop love. And so that's what blew me away uh, so much in Buddhism when I first started, was just the vast amount of method. That's what Buddhism have. Christians got the songs, you know, Sufis got the dance. And, well, Buddhism has the method. There is just so many different methods for different aspects of our mind and how to become great people, how to improve ourselves, how to awaken. And so, uh, Let's just look at bodhicitta as this idea of the loving heart, right? That's what bodhicitta is, an altruistic loving heart that's, that goes from this small circle of love for just your family members to making it bigger, to, to include uh, family members outside of that, and just make it bigger and bigger and bigger until that circle incorporates everyone. And we lose the distinction of us and them. This is true bodhicitta. This is uh, this is ultimate bodhicitta that spontaneously arises. And then the practice of mind training itself or heart training is simply uh, a handful of visualizations to be contemplated and meditated upon to become a better person. 
a more loving, kind, generous, caring person. It's that easy. Becoming a loving person and the practice to do it. So I hope that all came out a little bit easy. Uh, with that said, uh, these subjects are not uh, are not just something you study once and you're all set with. We study them over and over and over again. They're quite intense. Uh, this week in our meditations, our weekly meditations, we're going to be contemplating a handful of these during the week and doing our insight meditation on them. So I'm hoping they're going to open up to you and uh, besides my, my words and teaching them to you, that you'll have a real experience of these. And I hope that I, I've encouraged you enough and inspired you enough to put some effort into this practice. Uh, I think the practice of mind training is one of the most profound in all of the Buddhist texts. So uh, I really encourage everybody to, uh, to take a look and in encourage you to practice it and get involved. Again, you can download the, uh, my uh, text, Tibetan Buddhist Essentials, Volume 1 and Volume 3 for this subject. Uh, it's a free download from my website at TenzinTarpa.com. And with that said, I think it's almost, it's almost lunchtime for some of you. So let's take a little break. Uh, and uh, after that, we'll do a Q&A if anybody has any questions. So uh, you have a lot to think about during lunch, yeah? Okay, bye-bye.